We're going to continue in our series in the person and work of the Holy Spirit this morning by, by taking a step back in time. So far in our series, we've been focusing on the work of the Holy Spirit from our current perspective as Christians. We've considered His work in our salvation, in bringing about the new birth. We've considered His work in sanctification, the, the daily ongoing work of transforming us into the likeness of Christ. We've considered His work in revelation, not only that the Holy Spirit wrote the Scriptures, but that He continues to speak to us through them every day. And then last week we considered his working in the church by giving gifts to the church for the building up and the edification of the body of Christ. So from a historical perspective, we've taken for granted that what Jesus said he would do after his ascension in sending us the Holy Spirit, that this actually happened and is therefore now part of our personal experience as believers. But what I want to do today is I want us to spend our time specifically going back to look at the day of Pentecost. That day when the promised Holy Spirit was sent down from heaven to come and fulfill the purpose for which Jesus said he would come. Namely to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, to glorify Christ by taking what is his and giving it to us and by leading us as God's people into all truth. Pentecost, for most modern Christians, is not really seen as a day of particular significance, mainly because it's no longer a public holiday. But from a Christian theological perspective, Pentecost is just as crucial as Christmas or Easter. Because ultimately all that God purposed in sending Christ to earth that we remember at Christmas, and all that Christ actually accomplished through his death on the cross that we remember at Easter, it all finds its ultimate application in our lives as Christians because of the day of Pentecost. And so our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit is seriously deficient if we ignore the profound significance of this event. So as far as the yearly calendar is concerned, the day of Pentecost occurred 10 days after Ascension Day, where we remember the Lord Jesus ascending into heaven. And, and that event makes no sense to our understanding apart from Pentecost. Now, why do I say that? Well, you will recall that we've looked at this a number of times, that Jesus explained to his disciples that he needed to ascend to the Father so that the Holy Spirit could be sent down to earth. John 16 verse 7 onwards reminds us of that. Jesus says that he will, it's to our benefit, it's to our advantage that he goes away. And, and if he does not go away, the helper will not come to us. But if he goes, he will send him to us. And so that's what we're going to be considering today. This greatly anticipated day following the ascension of Jesus into heaven when the Holy Spirit would be sent down from heaven and would be to us as Christians everything that Jesus promised. Remembering that his coming into the world would be to our advantage, says Jesus, than if Jesus had remained on the earth in the flesh. And so I want us to consider our passage, Acts chapter 2, under two main headings today. 
Firstly, I want us to consider just four aspects of Pentecost which we see took place on the actual day. And then I want us to think of the practical implications of that, three practical implications of Pentecost for our lives as Christians. But before we do that, I want to, by way of introduction, firstly set the scene for Pentecost from an Old Testament perspective. See, as we come to our text in Acts chapter 2, notice that verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived. In other words, Pentecost as a religious day already existed before the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was a pre-existing Jewish religious feast day. So what was Pentecost then to the Jews? Well, two things. Firstly, it was the feast of the first fruits, and secondly, it was the celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Pentecost means 50, and it gets its name from the 50th day after the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. In the Old Testament, God instituted the the feast of the harvest as an opportunity for the people of God to bring an offering to God from the first fruits of that which God had blessed them with. It was a celebration of God's faithfulness to provide for his people and to enjoy the first fruits of what God was going to later provide them in the fullness of the harvest. So it was kind of a celebration and an expectation. But in parallel to that, after God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, it also became the day in which the people celebrated the day on which Moses climbed up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the word of the Lord and and descended down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. And so as we, we look back and we consider the significance of Pentecost from an Old Testament perspective, we see a striking pattern emerge between the first Pentecost at Sinai and the second Pentecost in Jerusalem. As we consider the first Pentecost, then we, we recognize that the people had spent 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Then God miraculously redeems them on the Day of Atonement as the blood of the Lamb uh, protects the Israelites as it's painted on the doorposts from the angel of death who passed through the land. Then 50 days later, as the people are, are out of Egypt now and they In the wilderness, and they come to Mount Sinai, God descends to meet with his people, and the mountain is covered in smoke with thunder and lightning and and great sounds of trumpets. And then we find that Moses goes up to meet with God, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, which he brings to the people. Now, if we move forward to the second Pentecost, we see the same pattern taking place spiritually, with many striking parallels. Again, we see the people of God had been through 400 years of God's silence since the last prophets had spoken, living in in spiritual slavery and bondage to sin and the devil. We see God graciously redeeming sinners through Jesus' blood shed on the cross at Calvary as the judgment of God falls on Jesus instead of sinners. Fifty days later, God descends to dwell with his people as the place where they met is is flooded with the sound of a mighty rushing wind and flames of fire settling on each person. And then we see that the Holy Spirit comes to write the law of God onto each person's new spiritual heart. 
And all of this, this coming of the Holy Spirit, we are told by Paul, is the first fruits of our adoption and final redemption. It's, it's a kind of a guarantee of what's awaiting in the final salvation. It's the seal and the deposit of our full salvation when Jesus returns. So I hope that you can see that much of the meaning and, and the significance of the day of Pentecost is rooted in the Old Testament revelation of God's plan of salvation. And there is much practical significance for us as God's people today as we remember and celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. So let's move on then to consider, in the first place this morning, the four aspects to Pentecost. The account of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 reveals four important aspects for us to understand the significance of the event. Number one, there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind in verse 2. Now, this is important because of what we've just considered from the first Pentecost on Mount Sinai. As God's presence descended, it was accompanied by loud sounds of thunder and lightning and, and trumpets and, and earthquakes. But there is more to it than simply the noise, the sound. You see, in the Bible, the word for wind, spirit, breath, it's the same word in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word ruach. In the Greek, it's the word pneuma. And so the Holy Spirit of God had become closely associated with wind or the sound of wind, which also represented the breath of God. So just as we read in Genesis chapter 1 that the Ruach of God was hovering over the earth back at the first creation, so now we see the Spirit of God is present at the second creation, this spiritual creation of the church of Jesus Christ. Back in Ezekiel 37, the prophecy of the valley of the dry bones explains what would happen on the day of Pentecost as Ezekiel is commanded by God to call forth the breath, the ruach, the wind to come from the four corners of the earth and to breathe on the dry, dead skeletons so that they may live. And so here we see that Pentecost then is, is the fulfillment of this vision of Ezekiel as the breath of God is, is poured out onto the earth, bringing new life out of the valley of spiritually dead corpses. Then the second thing we see is that there were tongues of fire which settled on each of them in verse 3. And again, as with the wind in the Old Testament having a clear connection to God's Spirit, so fire in the Old Testament has a very clear connection to the presence of God. Firstly, as a sign of God's judgment. We see this in Isaiah chapter 66 verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. So fire in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's presence in judgment. But the fire on the day of Pentecost was different. For this fire which came, it rested on the disciples, but they were not consumed. So what is going on here? Well, I think we're given a hint of the other aspect of God's 
presence by fire in the Old Testament when we consider Moses at the burning bush, where the fire in the bush did not consume the bush, but Moses was told to take off his sandals for the place where he was standing was holy ground. This was a place of the presence of the Lord, the holiness of the Lord. But what we see here in, in Pentecost again is, is something different. For this time, the fire was not centrally located either in the burning bush or on Mount Sinai or in the pillar of fire which, which went before the people or the Shekinah glory which filled the temple. What we see at Pentecost is this symbol of the presence of the Lord, the holiness of God, was not something which remains centralized, but something which we see divides and then rests on each person individually. The dwelling place of God is now with man, not in any kind of centralized temple, but within each believer. So that's the second aspect. The third aspect of Pentecost, we notice, is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 4. Now, the fact that we speak so easily these days of the filling of the Holy Spirit, I think reveals to us a kind of a disconnect of, of our thinking from the Scriptures in general, but particularly our understanding of the Old Testament. Let me remind you what happened back at the first Pentecost, when God descended to meet with Moses and the people at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 gives us all the preparations that Moses and the people had to go through before they would be ready for God to descend and to speak to them. But after God descended on the mountain in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning, this is what we read, Exodus chapter 20 verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So what is clear in the Old Testament is that whenever God presented himself to the people, there was an overwhelming sense of fear, a terrible fear, so much so that the people cried out to Moses, please Moses, don't let God speak to us directly. Di directly. You be our mediator. Otherwise we will be overcome at the sound of the voice of the Lord. And so it is truly incredible then to see what we see on the day of Pentecost. That when the sound and the fire descend on the disciples, they were not overcome with fear. They didn't run away from the presence of God. But now we are told they are actually filled with the presence of God. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it is crucial here to see that we cannot ever separate Pentecost from the cross. You see, it was on the cross where the fire of God's judgment consumed Jesus as he fully paid the price for the sins which you and I have committed. 
so that there is no longer fear for us who are in Christ in the presence of God. The presence of God is not something that has to be avoided or or feared, but it is now something to be desired and embraced. Jesus, as the true mediator, as the second Moses, he has become our eternal mediator, our great high priest, who through his death on the cross now grants us access into the very presence of God. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And the scriptures tell us that at that moment, the curtain in the temple, that thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was was ripped from top to bottom, torn in two. What an amazing picture of what we see taking place 50 days later as the Holy Spirit leaves the true Holy of Holies leaves the very throne room of heaven and descends and comes and dwells with us without consuming us. You and I as believers, we have become the living, burning bushes of God's presence in this world, the living presence of God with man. And then in the fourth place, we see that they all began to speak in foreign languages. Verse 4. Now, speaking in tongues, we see from verses 5 to 11, was a miraculous ability which God gave to each of those present to declare the mighty works of God to everyone in Jerusalem so that all might hear about the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. This is a a direct fulfillment of what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do as his primary mission when he was sent down to earth. Remember what Jesus said in John 16 verse 7, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And we, we see this happening right here in Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fills all those who are present and immediately gives them the ability to proclaim the truths of the gospel in the known languages of all the people who had gathered together in Jerusalem. Proclaiming the mighty works of God, proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and calling people to faith and repentance. The awesome works of God in saving sinners from the judgment which is to come. Through the righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place is declared to all the nations. See, the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit coming is to enable the disciples to fulfill the Great Commission, to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations as the gospel of salvation is preached to every nation. And so we read a bit further on that the result of that declaring of the mighty works of God on that day in all the languages of the people that had come to Jerusalem resulted in over 3,000 people being convicted of their sins and turning to Jesus Christ for salvation. Pentecost was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 22 where God promised that through his offspring, through Christ, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So there we have four key aspects to this incredibly significant day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was sent down from heaven. 
And the significance of these four elements of Pentecost is in the fulfilling of the shadows of this day in the Old Testament. But the day of Pentecost was a unique moment in God's plan of redemption. Just as Jesus' birth was a single historical event and his death and resurrection and ascension were unique historical events, so too the day of Pentecost was a unique historical event. But as with all of these key moments in salvation history, this day of Pentecost has an ongoing, profound, and profoundly theological and practical impact for us as believers. And, and it's that that I would like to explore for the rest of our time together. So in the second place, I want us to consider three implications or practical applications of the day of Pentecost for us as Christians. I think the first and the greatest implication of Pentecost must surely be that God dwells in us. Sometimes I really don't think we grasp the full implication of Pentecost for our lives today. God is no longer out there, but he is in here. He's living within each one of us through the indwelling and abiding presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 37 verse 27, God says, My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So there's a kind of a, a general understanding that God's presence will be with his people. But then Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22 takes it further and says, In him, speaking to the church, you are being built up into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's something very special about the body of believers in the local church being the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But Paul says in Corinthians something even more personal. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, Do you not know that your body individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So these verses, along with what we see at Pentecost, make it abundantly clear that, that every person who is born again, every person who becomes part of the family of God, is indwelt by or filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no biblical basis to believe that some people can be saved without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Or that there are kind of different levels of Christianity. You get those Christians who are born again but live without the Spirit. And then you get those who have been baptized with the Spirit but others who have not. No, Pentecost shows us that every person who turns to Jesus Christ for salvation at that moment of their conversion receives the Holy Spirit. That's clear from Acts chapter 2 verse 38. And Paul explains this to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. In him you also, speaking to all the members of the church in Ephesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is this deposit, this guarantee that we will acquire our full and final salvation when Jesus returns. 
Now, this presence of God within each one of us has two very different effects or outworkings in the world around us. Just as we saw in the Old Testament that the presence of God, symbolized by fire, was seen in two ways. One in terms of God's holiness and purification on the one hand, but then at the same time fire was seen to symbolize God's judgment and condemnation and ability to consume on the other hand. So too now, you and I, who are God's living, burning bushes, God's presence in this world, our lives will elicit two very different responses from others. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are a fragrance from death leading to death. To the other a fragrance from life leading to life. In other words, as the presence of God lives in us by the Holy Spirit, is seen in us through our lives, we will be to some people an aroma of death. As we remind them of God's anger which burns against sin and all that is evil and the judgment which awaits. But to others we will be the aroma of life because they will see the holiness of God in us. They will see the transforming power of God in us and they will be drawn to Jesus Christ for salvation. I want you to see that the presence of God with us is a truly glorious thing. So glorious, in fact, that Paul has a lot to say to believers to get our thinking right on on this, what it really means to have God living within us. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 to 18, to, to see how Paul explains the outworking of this presence of God dwelling within us. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 Now, speaking about Moses and the Ten Commandments and Mount Sinai, he says, Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, that which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the the greatness of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, that's you and I as Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Do you really get the implications of what Paul is saying here? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the very presence of God living in you. Such transforming power with such transforming glory that you are literally being changed from what you once were into the glory of Jesus Christ himself. And all of this comes from the Holy Spirit who lives within you. In other words, the presence of God in our lives should result in us radiating the glory of God to the world around us. Through our love, through our speech, through our deeds, through our marriages, through our families, through this church. We are not meant to fade into the masses. Young people, students, we are not meant to take a back seat in the world. No, we are meant to radiate the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to a world which is lost in their sin and facing eternal punishment from God. Remember that in the olden days, people did not have electricity as we do to just switch on a light switch. How did they generate light? It was created by fire. Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. You are the burning bushes of God's presence in this world. A, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp. And then put it under a basket. No, they put it on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine. What light is that? That's the light of the Holy Spirit of God's presence in your life. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, that's the first implication. God dwells in us. And that alone has such incredible practical applications for how we live out our lives. But a second implication of Pentecost is that God speaks through us. Now sadly today there has been so much division and and hurt and mudslinging caused by an unbiblical view and practice of speaking in tongues. Because tongues today, what we see going on in in much of Christianity is usually all about the individual. It's about the person speaking in tongues. It's about a so-called ecstatic experience. It's about churches who claim to celebrate the, the practice of tongues as a form of unintelligible speech or an angelic language which is totally disconnected from the foundational teaching of tongues in Acts chapter 2. And even disconnected from the practice of tongues explained by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. But what we see at Pentecost is that speaking in tongues was all about God. About declaring to others the mighty acts of God in a known foreign language so that the hearer could understand and believe and be saved. How sad it is that something which was a gift to the church to proclaim the gospel of salvation to all nations has ended up dividing the church of Jesus Christ back into individual little tribes. So I want us to to recover 
a very practical application of Pentecost for us today. Namely that of worldwide evangelism. Spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to every tribe and nation and language group. So it's what is happening here in Acts. That was the purpose. So does God then still give this miraculous gift of tongues to people today? This ability to speak the truths of God in a foreign language so that the hearers can believe the gospel? Does God still do it? Well, I believe that he can do this if he wants to. And I've heard of stories of missionaries who were given this miraculous ability to speak to a group of people or tribe in their native language without ever having learned the language. But during my preparation this week, I have spent more time than I would like to admit searching for one factual account of such a modern use or gift of tongues, and I could not find any. Instead, what I kept finding as I searched the internet is that God's normal means of reaching the world through the preaching of the gospel is through people like Andy and Debbie Abbott who commit their lives to studying and learning the languages of the unreached peoples of the world so that the gospel can be proclaimed, so that the Bible can be translated, so that indigenous churches can be established in all the languages of the world, so that God is praised and worshipped and obeyed in each person's mother tongue. I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but... Just notice firstly for a moment that what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is that everyone at Pentecost who received the Holy Spirit spoke in tongues. Everyone. And later in the passage, we see that Peter quotes the prophecy of Joel to say that in the last days, all people would prophesy. So Peter explains from Joel that the people speaking in tongues at Pentecost were fulfilling the role of prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy is declaring the words of God, the truths of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in their own languages. But what is very interesting, however, is that immediately following this event at Pentecost, Peter preaches the gospel to the crowds. They were cut to their heart. They repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And 3,000 were saved on that day. But we do not hear of any of them speaking in foreign languages. Instead, what we find is that they immediately devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And daily, we are told, they attended the temple together to study the word of God, to praise God together, sharing their homes and their possessions together. And we told that the Lord added day by day those who were being saved. How do we apply what took place here at Pentecost to us then today? And I think it is this, that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, when he comes into my life, when he brings about the new birth, he equips every single person to be a spokesman for Jesus in the world. The issue here is not mainly about being able to speak in a foreign language. It's about declaring the mighty works of God to all the peoples of the world. 
speaking out for Jesus, being a spokesman for God is not limited to evangelists or preachers or missionaries. It's meant for all of us. No matter who we are, how young or old we are, how long you've been a Christian, we are all meant to declare the glory of God. We are meant to declare the mighty acts of God to those around us as God gives us opportunity. All of us, all of us have been given at least one tongue. It's your mother language. And many of you can speak two or even three or four languages fluently. And the application here today is this. Are you using God's gift to you of language to declare the mighty acts of God to those around you? As I said, I, I don't have an issue with those who claim that God still gives this gift of foreign languages to, to some people. But if it is from God, it will be used to declare the praises of God. It will be used to preach the gospel to those who would otherwise not have been able to understand and in order to call them to repentance and salvation as this group did at Pentecost. But let me ask you this probing question, and this is one which I've been wrestling with this week. If you have a language that you speak fluently, and you have people around you who all understand that language and yet have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Why would God give you the ability to speak the truth of the gospel in a foreign tongue if you are not using the language he has already given you to proclaim the gospel of salvation to others? Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 3 verse 15 to always be prepared to, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you to always be ready to speak about Jesus to anyone who may ask you, to anyone who is willing to listen. Jesus in Matthew 10 says, if you are, are brought before a trial, and you have to give an account of your Christianity. Don't worry about what you have to say in that moment because the words will be given to you because the Holy Spirit will speak through you. This is the same thing as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and giving to us, entrusting to us this message, this ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God continues by the Holy Spirit to make his appeal of the gospel, his appeal of reconciliation through us as the, the Spirit of God speaks through us. Every one of us, if we are believers, we have been commissioned by Jesus to be his spokesman to reach the lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, always being ready to give a defense, always being ready to proclaim the truths of the gospel as we live out our lives as ambassadors for God, extending the reconciliation that we've had from God, we extend that to those who are still under his wrath. One commentator puts it like this, too often the burden for missions 
is kept alive by a tiny minority of eager Christians who struggle to find novel ways to interest other Christians in missions. But the truth is that those who do not have a heart for missions do not have the heart of Jesus Christ. Can I repeat that? Those who do not have a heart for missions do not have the heart of Jesus Christ. The gospel breaks down the barriers of race and language and color and Pentecost gives us a glimpse of what that looks like. So God continues to speak through us. What does he speak through us? Primarily as we look at Acts chapter 2, he speaks through us the mighty acts of God. He declares the gospel of salvation through us and he extends the message of reconciliation through us as we are his ambassadors. And then finally today, I want us to see a third implication of Pentecost, namely that God restores lives around us. Now here's another wonderful outworking of Pentecost for our lives today, and that is that Pentecost shows us the effects of, of the curse of God back at Babel in Genesis chapter 11, that they have been reversed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In verses 9 to 11 of Acts chapter 2, we see a table of nations, all different languages, hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own mother tongue. And we must ask the question, where did all these languages come from? Well, back in Genesis 11, we read that the world only had one language and they got together to to build a city with, with a tower which would reach into heaven so that they could claim the glory and the worship of God for themselves. And so at Babel, God comes down and he confuses all their languages and he scatters the people across the face of the earth. But now at Pentecost... We see a complete reversal as God comes down again, this time not to confuse and to scatter, but to restore and unite as the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is proclaimed to every language group in their own mother tongue so that as the people hear and believe, they all now become one new united people of the living God. Much of the New Testament is written to explore and explain this new united identity of the people of God, which is the church of Jesus Christ. The implication of Pentecost is that God is fulfilling his plan to build one new people out of all the diverse cultures and races and languages and social groups of the world as people are restored from death to life. And so become members of the body of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself, in Christ, one new man in the place of two, in the place of the many, Jew and Gentile, so making peace and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And so this means that you and I, as the church, as Honeyridge, here in Johannesburg, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, indwelt by the one Holy Spirit of God, we have more in common with those in the church who are of a different language, of a different color, of a different social background. We have more in common as members of Honeyridge in Christ than we have with our own blood brothers and sisters who are outside of Christ. Where else does an Afrikaner boer and a Zulu warrior and a Malawian metal worker and an English teacher and a white magistrate and a young teenage girl and an old man and an ex-alcoholic and a recovering porn addict and a, a wealthy businessman and, a, and an unemployed domestic worker? Where else do you see these people living together in harmony? Loving one another, caring for one another, calling each other family. Where else do you see that? It is only in the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is still in the business of restoring lives. No matter who you were born as, no matter what you have become or not become, in Christ we are all one living, united, mobilized people of the living God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes to Christians like you and I scattered all over the Roman Empire, and he says this, But you... As diverse as you are, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The day of Pentecost changed the world and continues to change the world as the Holy Spirit does the same work which God the Father sent him to do, the same work which Jesus Christ gave him to do. Are you a child of God today? That's the question. Are you indwelt by, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? If not, then my prayer for you today is that the Holy Spirit will convict you of your sin, that you will not have peace in your heart, that you won't sleep for the next week because you will be convicted of your sin before a holy and righteous God. That God will reveal to you the judgment that is to come unless you turn to Christ. And that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you the way of righteousness found only in Jesus Christ so that you might be saved. But for those of you who are children of the living God today, who have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, my prayer for you today is that you and I will grasp who we are. That we will be who we are. 
that has living, burning bushes of God's presence in this spiritually dark world, you and I will declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that God's purpose for reaching the world with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ will be accomplished through us as His church. May God help us. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank you again this morning for your word, for the tremendous encouragement and challenge that it is again to us this morning, encouragement to consider all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, all that you have done for us through the person of the Holy Spirit whom you poured out at Pentecost and who continues to indwell and equip and gift and mobilize us as Christians to do the work for which you sent the Holy Spirit to accomplish in us, which is to declare the praises of God, the mighty acts of God, the, the gospel of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ to people of every tribe and nation and tongue. O Holy Spirit, forgive us for so often having become so distracted in this world by chasing after so-called spiritual experiences that we've lost our heart for the lost, that we no longer consider our responsibility to be your ambassadors and missionaries and evangelists in this world, wherever you've placed us and to the ends of the world. Forgive us for having lost sight of, of your purpose of coming into the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. May we be your people afresh today who are the shining lights of your grace to the world around us. That people might see you at work in us. And as they look at, at you radiating the glory of Christ, as we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, that people would be drawn to our Heavenly Father, that they would come under that conviction that only you can bring them under, that they would cry out to you for salvation, that they too would then become children of the Most High God who continue to radiate your grace and your glory to others. Oh Lord, you've given us this incredible work to do for you. You've given us your Holy Spirit to indwell us and to empower us and to accomplish this work. Forgive us for being so lethargic. For forgive us for being so self-centered in our lives as Christians. And we ask that you would cause us as the church at Honeyridge to embrace afresh the working of the Holy Spirit in us individually and as a church to accomplish all that you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we close our service today, I pray that your heart has been encouraged and challenged this morning, that you will join with me as we sing our final song together, Let Your Kingdom Come. As we ask God to be at work through us, as we represent Jesus Christ and His kingdom in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our city, that Jesus Christ might soon come again because all the nations of the world have heard about him and believed. May the Lord bless you in this week ahead. May he help you in this great task that he has given to us and equipped us for by his Holy Spirit. Amen.